Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Like this is how have you ever read the gospels, which are the complete antithesis? I mean, for sure, do what you can in the world, and if we quote succeed in a worldly sense, great, but his kingdom is not of this world. Writer, Catholic convert, ex lawyer, sober alcoholic of 33 years, Heather King discusses her faith, women, the communion of saints, Saint Therese of Lisieux, and the little way, and more on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I will be asking interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, and why we think we know it. I hope this format, in relationship and dialogue, and back and forth, may help us approach the truth and to have a really good time doing it. If you should want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today's guest is Heather King. She is a writer. She wrote Parched, a memoir in 2005, and she's written 12 or perhaps now 13 books. She writes a number of columns, including one for Magnificat and another weekly arts and culture column. She has been a journalist for NPR's All Things Considered, and she has a website, Heather-King, that's the little dash, the hyphen, Heather-King, that you can go to and read all of her writings and watch her videos. Uh, Heather King, uh, thank you so much for joining us this fine, cold California morning. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm in Tucson, Arizona. It's cold here, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what brings you, what takes you to Tucson? Oh, I just, that's a long story. I'll probably write a, a book about it. I, I joke that I write a book about every single thing that happens to me, which, as you say, is <laughs> Maybe 12. But um, anyway, it was, it, I'd been in LA 30 years and uh, it was it, the, the thumbnail would be it was just time to go and, and um, open a new chapter of the journey. Um, I still write for, uh, you, you mentioned my weekly arts and culture column, and, uh, and, I, and I write, and I hope I will for many years to come for the Archdiocese of L.A., uh, so my part of my heart is definitely in Los Angeles always. Okay. Well, I loved Parched. It is a brilliant, tragicomical memoir. And I read it exactly when I needed it. And those of us, and I think that's got to be everyone, who make the same mistakes over and over again, uh, as St. Paul wrote, I don't understand why I keep doing the opposite of what I want to be doing in Romans. We pick up your book, and suddenly we are not alone. And literature keeps us company in that way. And I thought I was a train wreck. But then look at this girl, my spiritual sister. So can you, <laughs> can you talk a bit about compulsion and sin and the problem that St. That Paul describes? Um, mm. And you, you say Flannery O'Connor says we resist grace because we resist change. So what the heck is wrong with us humans? 
Mm. Well, I think, I think we have a story about that. It's called Adam and Eve in the Garden. Right. <laughs> Somewhere along the line. And that, that's not to shift blame, but um, I think every human being gets, oh, there's a fault line in my psyche somehow that I long to be to be good, I think, and to connect with people and to contribute. And and then there we are. Um, mm-hmm. well, first of all, thank you. I think after all this time, in a way, Parched is my is still my favorite, still forever my favorite. But it's very, it's a no holds barred, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's life in the bars of Boston. But it's also very much. I had been a Catholic. I converted. I came into the church in 1996. So I'd been a Catholic for almost 10 years. And, and it's really a very Catholic book at, at bottom. It's a book about death and resurrection, mm-hmm. the death of, that every addict, if, if he or she recovers, has to come to, the death of your identity. That is truly becomes your identity as an alcoholic, or it did for me. Um, but this very interesting point that you bring up, um, of is obsessive compulsive behavior, which alcoholism, in my opinion, and from 20 years of experience with it, absolutely is. I mean, if you could stop drinking, you would. I mean, zillions of people die from it. If they could stop, they would. So something has been taken, your free will has in a sense been overcome by the thing. And it's, I love about alcoholism that it is still a mystery. It's a mystery to science. It's a mystery to medicine. Um, the only thing, interestingly, that I have found that works is a spiritual program that actually led me to Christ without ever mentioning Christ. So it's a, your free will gets overtaken. At the same time, um, something inside you, I think, in order to recover it's be some yes that you say, like Mary's yes, below the level of consciousness where you somehow, whatever I, the God within you says, I want to live and I don't have any idea what my life would look like without booze or drugs, but I'm going to say yes to it. And, and all evidence to the contrary I mean, because I didn't even really want to stop drink. I just figured I would drink until I died. Yeah, and, you know. So it's very mister. All I can say is something greater than me absolutely came in and removed that obsession. And that's just the beginning. It's like a conversion. It's like, okay, great. Now the real work begins. And so that's been the work of my life for thirty-five years. There's also I I, I just remember um, when you write about the intervention the intervention that your family staged. There's something about relationships, right? When you go to rehab, it's about a group of people, a community of people. And I can I can hold my own life at small value, but when I look at my brothers and sisters, and I like I'm I think I'm worried about them. Or there's and there's something very Catholic about that. That you know improvement comes in community, healing comes in community. You can't you, nobody can do it by themselves. Yes. Absolutely. And I think there's something about, um, you know, there's that passage in the Gospels about if your brother does you wrong, you get you get get someone else and go to him and and speak about it like we we address in community. And I think an intervention, the operative point about an intervention is honesty. All the people who've been 
walking around you, as we do uh, often when someone has a huge problem. We pretend it's not there. We're afraid they're going to get mad at us. And an intervention says, we see how you drink and it's affecting us as well as, you know, we're worried about you and it's affecting us. And so that your conscience, you know, I mean, you absolutely still have a conscience while you're while you're drinking. You have to ignore it in many <laughs> you do ignore it in many, but it's there. And I think that's it's it's a kind of conviction where you can no longer pretend, oh, it's just my life. It's mine to ruin if I want to. Right. 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 Okay. So and then and another irony, or I don't know if it's irony, another paradox here is that in humility you know, uh, we find strength. Uh, back, back to Paul, right? Who writes, "My my grace is suffi- my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness." And then he writes, "When I am weak, I am strong." There's mm-hmm. there's something about that. You know, you hit rock bottom. You you the, the first step in those twelve steps is I I am powerless, and then the reverse happens. Then you yeah. like you realize you realize you, what happens. How does that work? The weakness and the strength in paradise, right? Yes, and you're so right. It's, um, I mean, just in saying, uh, uh, I, I'm an alcoholic is the same. In a way, that's the penitential right with which we begin the mass. I mean, what is the first thing we say during mass? I'm weak and I need help. Yeah, I'm weak and I've gone off the path and I need help. And absolutely, we're powerless. We're not helpless. There's a huge, huge difference. And um so I think that exactly that admission of weakness, that, that alcohol, it's the greatest gift of my life, that it really brought me to my knees. And I'm smart or smart enough. I had a law degree that I had somehow gotten while I was drinking. Um, you know, but all the things that our culture tells us will avail, our intelligence, our drive, our ability to organize, our charm, our good looks, if we have good looks, Um it, it availed nothing. And so it was in my weakness. And it continues to be that way. Um, that Because when I can admit I'm weak, then something greater, again, that power of, of Christ's love that is infinitely greater than me, then that comes in and starts to. And then I get to cooperate with it in my bumbling way. Well, is it that might even be a curse that you were able to get by for so long on your, <laughs> on your talents? Uh, you know, from in, in your, in your memoir, you start off winning the spelling bee as a little kid. And then you have this, you have this narrative where I'm just, I'm really good at school. I'm really, I'm, you know, like everybody knows I'm good at this. And so you can go through law school and graduate cum laude and everything, no matter what. And so does that preserve your illusion that you are, that you could do it on your own? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and in fact, there's this kind of perverse pride. I mean, I joke yeah. that I would, when I, even now when I hear someone, you know, some, some young, um, you know, <laughs> well put together person with good teeth and like an haircut say, oh, I, I graduated from law school. And I think, yeah, I bet you didn't do it while you were wasted, dude. <laughs> You know, like there's like a perverse pride that you managed to do it. And it's, you know, and sober, it's kind of like, um, that's not really something to be proud of. (laughs) No. And uh, does that make it harder that we as a culture, we think drinking stories are funny. And I love your drinking stories. And when I have, I have mine too. And I'm, I'm just very happy that I 
grew up at a time when there was no internet and nobody could take pictures that would last forever, you know? Uh, but like, I still think my, my, you know, my youthful uh, shenanigans are comical. And when old friends get together, we talk about, oh, remember that time when this happened? And that was crazy. But we wouldn't mm. talk about that, about other sins, you know, especially sins that are harmful to others more explicitly than they are to ourselves and so on. So mm -hmm. there's a problem there. I don't know how to, I don't know what the problem is, but. Well, if I can just say, I mean, I think part of, part of the difficulty and the mystery too, is that there are lots of people who enjoy drinking and sort of drink a lot, but they're not alcoholics. Hmm. When push comes to shove, they can stop when they can. And look, but but an alcoholic cannot, I mean, you could have your doctor say you're going to die of cirrhosis. And it's like, you go to, you know, you, that's, you go to the liquor store two seconds later, yeah. you know? Um, so I think it, uh, that's why like real alcoholics don't like tell war, you know, they, my, the, the, yeah, they tend not to, I think we have a very healthy sense of you know, oh, that was a debacle and we can laugh at ourselves. But um, yeah, exactly. It's not funny. But also that wine, look at look at the Eucharist, for heaven's sakes, has alcohol right. in it. I mean, it's the, so there's a purpose, a beautiful purpose for alcohol. Clearly wine, it's meant for conviviality. It's meant for community. And the kind of satanic element of alcoholism that it presents as that at first and then it turns on you and becomes your master. So, and I think it's very difficult for people who are not alcoholics to even understand that they can only, they, they feel how they drink. And so they just look at the alcoholic and think, put it down already, you know, but yeah. you can't. So. No, that's really, that's really helpful is you're looking at this wondrous beast of alcohol on the end of this chain. And then you're wondering like, which end of the chain am I on? <laughs> Which end of the chain is the, right. uh, the, the okay. Um, so you, you were, you, you describe the moment of, of like where you fall to your knees, visiting your friends. I think, was it in Georgia? Somewhere beautiful. Nashville. Nashville, sorry, in Tennessee. And you're in the woods and you feel, uh, you, you, you feel the hand of the hand of grace and, and you you compare it to some of the characters in, in Flannery O'Connor stories, and I don't remember which ones, but it makes me think of Mrs. Turpin in the one who's like um, at the end of Revelation, where she suddenly sees the stairway of all the souls ascending and the cosmic battle. And uh, there's a lot of Flannery O'Connor in, in your writing, which I love very much. Um, I mean, allusions to. And uh, can you describe that? Can you describe that moment? And yeah, and you're and you're very right. That was that was kind of the seminal moment. And let me preface this by saying, to this day, I am so not a, um, you know, I, I just don't. I the, the sort of quote mystics who subsist on the Eucharist for forty years and get the every <laughs> Friday, you know, the visions, the visions. Like that is so not my thing. Yeah. I come from New England, where it's like, <laughs> no, you just work harder, and that's how you get. Um, and this was not a vision, but it was. What happened was, I was just totally strung out. I'd graduated from law school. I passed a lot, uh, the uh, bar. And I just could not. I mean, it was a daily morning drinker. I was wait. I'd been was getting. I was waitressing and getting fired now from waitressing jobs. So I was just. I think I was thirty three or four, and I went to visit these friends of mine in Nashville who were had jobs and everything. They they knew I was in trouble, but they invited me to come stay. And they were off at work, and I was drinking in the morning. I wandered into the woods, 
And I just had this moment where I, I was so exhausted. I sank to my knees. I was smoking. I sank to my knees. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> you know, feeling sorry for yeah. myself. And I just, I saw, I remember seeing these ants crawling along the trunk of this pine tree, I think it was, you know, in the lichen. And I just realized, because I have a deep sense of wonder. Mm. And on some level, I realized I can't feel anything. I am utterly, I've been sucked dry of my soul. And at that moment, I I just felt this, um, I can't, it, it was like a force pulling me down sort of pulling me down to the netherworld. And in that moment, I literally, I had gone to Sunday school, congregational church, and I had not prayed in dec- since that, since I was in sixth grade or something, and even then probably not. And I just, man, I prayed the Lord's Prayer. It was the only prayer I knew. And the words just, just like the atheist in the foxhole, our yeah. father, who, you know, and I, and when I got to deliver me from evil, I felt that to the core of my soul. I realized, you know, I'm dying. If I drink like this, continue, I'm going to die. And um, and I said the prayer. And then two seconds later, I was overcome with shame and self-consciousness. And I thought, oh, what has just happened? Did I pray? Wow. I'm yeah. worse than I thought. And so I was not delivered at that moment, but... I think maybe three months later, my family had the intervention. And to this day, I'm convinced that was the answer, you know, to my yeah. prayer. So, Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask you a, uh, a question about uh, a woman who has a lot in common with you in her love of God and his church, but in other respects is super different. And that is St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, about whom you wrote in your, in your book, A Shirt Aflame, uh, A Year with St. Therese. And could you tell us about the little flower and the, and the little way? Oh, yes. St. Therese of I'm looking at a picture of her right now that's yeah. on my desk. Um, deep companion, and if anyone doesn't know, um, uh, bourgeois French Carmelite, 1873 to 1897, I believe, uh, was when she lived, and came from a very pious family. And very, uh, and her mother died when she was very young, so she had a big abandonment wound. Some other. Stuff And she was sort of neurotic too, very sort of codependent, we would call it these days. Anyway, she entered, she had the call and she entered a lifelong virgin. She entered the Carmelite convent at 15 after appealing to the Pope himself, because that was usually the, the minimum age was 18. And she lived at the in the convent for, I think, a mere um, nine years. She died at 23 or 24, very young. And in that short time, just... She wrote under orders from her superior, who was her actual blood sister. She had three sisters with her in the convent, I think, two or three. And she wrote what we now know as the story of a soul, her spiritual autobiography. And this woman who was unschooled in the sense of she was very smart, but she didn't have an advanced degree from Notre Dame in theology or anything like that. And she somehow got to the heart of Christ and of the Gospels in a way that has inspired and guided people all over the world. And her thing was basically, um, 
her heart just burned. She wrote the Apostles' Creed in her own blood and then folded it up and carried it next to her. Like, this is my girl. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> yeah. She carried it next to her heart. Yes, like in a little locket. Oh, yeah. But, um, but she was not nutty. She was not crazy. She was really, really grounded. And she was not into big mortification. She said, oh, I tried to maybe not slump in church. And, and, she, and, and she tried to smile. Her little way, it's partly doing little things for the love of God. She said, one of her great lines, to pick up a pin for love can convert a soul. But I think to me, the little way it, it it includes all of those kinds of things, you know, smiling at the person who absolutely raises your hackles or yeah. just drives you insane with their whining or their whatever. Um, can I treat that pers- person like Christ? But her real, I think the little way is you don't have to have some huge charism. Maybe you don't. She didn't even know how to fix her own hair when she got in because they had maids in her home. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't good at housework. Um, and, and I think for those of us who um, just know we're just normal, ordinary, little little people. We don't have great, maybe organizational skills, great leadership skills, great. I couldn't even be, uh, I wasn't, didn't even have the vocation to be a wife or a mother. I shouldn't say didn't even, because those are massive vocations, but they weren't mine. And for a woman, that's a real sort of, whoa, what am I meant for then? Um, And so Therese, um, Therese tells us, you don't, you don't need to be special or have a special skill, just form your heart to receive Christ and to love him. She said, she was once asked what she prayed, what she said to Jesus when she sat before the blessed sacrament. And she said, she thought from it and said, I don't say much of anything. I just love him. So that's Therese. <laughs> and, uh, it makes me want to always makes me kind of teary. Um, yeah. And there's tons, there's just zillions of books written about her. I mean, that's kind of Teresa in a nutshell, but there's all kinds of wonderful um, stuff about her. So. Okay, but so she cuts right to the heart of, of like, she has been called the most popular saint, perhaps with St. Francis. She is a doctor of the church, you know, mm-hmm. along with guys like St. Jerome and Augustine of Hippo. And here's mm-hmm. this simple girl who died in her early 20s, Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I think, was it John Paul II who named her a doctor of the church? Uh, I think Pope Pius X called her the greatest saint of, of modern times. And so wow. there's something that people get about her. And I, I find it tricky to articulate. I've not read her um, story of a soul. So I only know about her from you and from other secondary um, sources. But there's a there's a there's a mystery, uh, like a real mystery with a capital M of what she figured out how how early because something as simple as picking up a pen, we do that all the time, right? I uh, and in our like I, I'm 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 a historian and an academic, but I never found those jobs forthcoming. So now I teach high school, and instead of being disappointed, I say like, wow, this is a real pastoral opportunity. Here's a bunch of crazy kids who, you know, trash the classroom every day, and I can love them well and pick up after <laughs> them. And, uh, you know, and yes. that's my little way. And um, I think anybody who's like stuck at home, uh, taking care of a baby, you're changing a diaper, that's your little way or, or, or so on. And is that, where's this, this wisdom that really resonates with everybody everywhere? How does, 
How did she arrive upon it? Do you have any any? I mean, you've thought about her um, for a long time. Yes. Well, I think she she had the um, she just had that heart that at a young age she had the pondering heart, the heart of in Martha and Mary. She had the Mary heart that sat at the at the feet of Christ. And I think one of the reasons she resonates for me is that in this culture. Um, that that absolutely attempts to um, and is I think has made great inroads into the church to the to the church's great detriment. You know the culture of power, property, prestige, success. Get straight A's. Get, get your yeah. degree in theology. Know all the great chapels of the world. Know the movers and shakers of the Catholic world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like this is how have you ever read the gospels, which are the complete antithesis? I mean, for sure, do what you can in the world, and if we quote succeed in a worldly sense, great. But his kingdom is not of this world, and I think Therese just gets to the heart of that without being polarizing, without saying your way is wrong and this way is right. She just goes to the heart. She's just very clear on how. Um, uh, is, on, on who who she is, and that her her gifts, such as they are, are are very very humble, and 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 yet her heart. This is another thing I love about her. Her heart. She yearns to be a priest, a martyr, a soldier, a missionary. Um, again, in, in this, in the in the, you know, the world that that tells all the women in the church, oh, you need to fight to be a priest, for example. Yeah. And Therese was, there's this great anecdote about her when she was on the way, she's on pilgrimage to Rome with her father. Literally, her goal is to appeal to the Pope himself and beg him to let her enter the convent at Carmel at 15. And so they're en route and there's a bunch of other pilgrims and there's a lot of priests. And she writes very diplomatically. She had a great sense of humor, too, in her journal. And she said, I, I saw then that priests need a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> and I determined from that moment forward to pray for them unceasingly. Yeah. And it's, like, it's, just, it's like perfect. Let's pray. Yeah. And let's pray for if we if we have a problem with a priest or they like, let's pray for them. Yeah. That's what you do as a follower of Christ. And you do it with a heart with a heart that has a sense of humor that realizes, yeah, I have a lot of faults, too. And God bless them. Look at them up there in the altar with all their faults and their humanity trying to serve trying to serve Christ just as I am. And then your heart opens to the whole thing. And instead of trying to jockey for power, you become a priest in that. And she totally got that. If your heart longs to be a priest in the true sense of the word, and you're a woman, in the true sense meaning a shepherd, a pastor, um, a bridge, do it. You're surrounded by people who need help, whether it's the your sisters in the convent, your high school students, as you just said, Chris, your neighbors, your fellow recovering alcoholics. Do it. Do in your daily life. It's all there. And because if you can't do it there or you're unwilling to, 
you're not going to be a bridge or a help to anyone else. No, it's so liberating because you know, we think we yeah. need, I really, uh, to do this, I really need a scarlet cape or yeah. I need a higher salary or I need so totally. you know, like more letters after my name. Uh, you know, it's or like a writer, like 3.5 million YouTube followers. Um, and it's like, you know, at some point it's like, are you getting people to follow Christ or to follow you? Yeah, like yeah. what, you know? Um, and again, listen, like however the gospel gets spread, fantastic in however, quote, large or small amounts. But it's not it's not the number like one soul as a perfect example. It's it's this quality of the soul, not the number of people that follow you on whatever, you know. Yeah, right. Like uh, who's who's famous? Mother Teresa, who hopped off a train, just hopped off a train and she wasn't. She wasn't planning everything. She was like, oh, look at these poor people. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is a really big question I, I I have a hard time answering because I'm, you know, I'm a male. And um, the the what you're addressing here in our Catholic Church, it's, it treats women and men differently. And critics will say, well, how come the women do not have um, offices and positions of authority in the hierarchy of the church? And how that's, you know, they should be ordained. The Episcopalians are ordained. Um, women should be deacons. I'm in diaconate formation with uh, with my um, brothers, and and a lot of them bring. Uh, I mean, it's expected that uh, deacons and deacons' wives go to formation together because that's almost an that's an implicit office. The the wife of the deacon, and my wife is a Protestant. For one thing, she's got to watch her small kids. Um, but like the the idea that uh, you know there's a deacon and then there's the wife of the deacon, it's different. It's not the same, and I don't know how to answer people who say like. Well, this is a patriarchal, uh, un- unjust church, and and you've thought a lot about it. What do you what do you say? Um, well, for one thing, I think of Mary, who was crowned Queen of Heaven and Earth by Christ Himself, and I say, how can you say the church does not honor and venerate women? I think all the teachings of the church around. Um, marriage and family, which is really the heart, the heart of everything. I mean, it's how the Gospels begin, the star rising on the Holy Family, are absolutely geared toward protecting and cherishing women and children. Um, and it may be because I'm not, I've, I've never been involved. Yeah, I'm, I'm married, like, re, you know, reading and <laughs> lighting a candle in my little prayer corner. So I'm not involved in church kind of administration or politics or anything like that, and, and perhaps I'm not, um, don't feel the difference so keenly. But I mean, just what you just said, Chris, I'm forming for the diaconate, and my wife, my wife isn't there or isn't being, because she's tending to the children. And I think the problem is that we ourselves, and that includes most especially maybe women, and I mean culturally secular culture in and the church. Why don't we value the raising of children? Why is that not equal to or greater than the position of deacon? It's not, it's not, it's that we don't honor sufficiently, to my mind, what women, like the crown of womanhood, which is motherhood, um, and and women themselves, we women themselves, um, in our in our quest for power, property, and prestige, and and I think very understandably. I mean, that's part of the fall. It's part of our hey, wait a minute, what about me? Um, so, but I personally, 
I don't need to have, like, my mind is nimble enough to look, see a man on the altar and, and to understand that he's speaking on behalf of, for, through all of humanity. I don't see a priest and think I'm, that means I'm oppressed. Like, I don't make that about me somehow. Um, I see a pastor. I think deep in the human heart is our, our parents, right? The father. Men are stronger than women. They're taller than women. They have a different psyche. I think, to me, great. I want, I want a shepherd, a pastor. Um, I don't have any problem with God, God the Father. I, I just don't. It's not, this is the stuff, the stuff that, Chris, that my heart is always, oh, my gosh, why am I such a horrible why am I so judgmental? Yeah. Why am I so mean? Why am I so insanely self-centered? Oh, look, this is the stuff that comes up in prayer. It's not like, why can't I be a priest? This is just me. It's, oh my gosh, I've been judging this person. I can't, they, all they do is waffle. They can't make this decision back and forth for gosh sakes. Make the, and then I realize, oh, I'm doing that. I'm doing that with this issue in my life. That's why I, it's, uh, it's the purification of the heart. It's how can I lay down my life for my friends? Like, okay, this morning I get an email. I had written this, I write for Magnificat and I've written a piece about this wonderful man. I think he's a servant of God now, Father Emil Capon, who was a chaplain, a chaplain um, I guess, army and got captured by the Japanese and literally laid down his life for his friends, incredibly moving, heroic. And this guy had read the piece, emails me, had looked far and wide for my email. Thank you so much for your piece. And I'm praying to Father Capon for the healing of my cousin, Peter Cristalli or something like that. And I just, that's my life. Like I get to be, that's my way of being a priest. That's my way do you, do you see what I mean? Like, who cares if I, if a, a man, woman, I don't, I just don't, I have so much many more pressing things that press on my heart and that fill my heart with joy. So that's kind of where I am. Well, and you've done a lot of that with your, with your writing and your um, columns and, and your speaking. There's a lot of people who we'll never hear about who do it daily with people they know and love and, you know, meet on the bus and meet in the street and help in their profession somehow. Um, yeah. And um, okay, so w- I, I want to just read a question that I got from. So people can always send questions to almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. And one listener named Amy here in California uh, asked about the pronoun he. Uh, and I, the catechism tells us God has no gender, he is God. So that's, you know, he is God, but he has no gender. And Pope Francis says God is both father and mother. And, you know, we know that. Um, God created us in his image, male and female. He created them. Do you have, you, is this an interesting question? Do you think this is? Uh... Do you want to say, refer to God as it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's, I don't know. I just, again, I just for myself, I don't need the world to self-refer back to me mm. every second. I don't need them to recognize me specifically I mean, it's the it's straight. The catechism also. I mean, clearly, the Trinity. It's God, the Father. It's to me. Let's not. Let's move forward with that and see what we can bring. What kind of love we can bring into the world. So yeah, I don't. 
And I'm not, I don't mean to minimize other people's concerns. And if those are their concerns, that's fine. All I can say is it's just simply not remotely a concern of mine, that kind of picking apart of the language or insisting the language. Yeah. Well, and you and and the other women we've mentioned, St. Therese, Flannery O'Connor, we could add Dorothy Day or um, Mother Teresa. There's so many women who just started... um, who started working without anybody's permission or say so and became did very holy things. Um, so what is what is the role of a 21st century feminist of great education and intellectual ability in this 2000 year old church of ours? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You have to find one. <laughs> no, but your point, your point is well taken. And those are the people those are the women that I that I just revere. Listen, the church has been watered by the blood of the martyrs and the saints. It ever has been. It ever will be. So that's my question. How can I move toward that? And the women that you named, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, Teresa of Lisieux, so many others, Flannery O'Connor as, as a layperson, Carol Hauslander, another great friend of mine, companion. Um, they didn't, they took the church as it was. The church gives us the body and blood of Christ. I mean, that to me, it's somehow managed to safeguard that for 2,000 years. That's really all I, you know, and the guidance um, of the teachings. It's like, what do you want? It has given us the body and blood of our Lord that I should be worthy to receive that. So you go out and you take your, whatever your gifts are, and you take that out into the world and you don't make a federal case out of it and you don't, you just do it. And it's very, very difficult. I think this is one reason I don't, I don't feel quote oppressed because if you live, um, well, just as any, in whatever your station, but it so happens mine is childless, spouseless, celibate, obviously, because I'm single um, for many years and a, and a writer, a Catholic writer, in the world, so meaning a lot of my, most of my friends, well, I will say a lot of my friends are not remotely Catholic. Some of them are, you know, too polite to say so, but sort of virulently anti-Catholic. So, it, you know, to be a Catholic in the culture, not in a religious order, not protected sort of, or, um, you know, with a place of sanctuary, I will say, in a particular community, that is not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and to stay true uh, to to the church and try to bring Christ into the war. I mean, it's, it's so the results, quote unquote, are so meager, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, then, um, and and again, this is Therese. Therese was no one knew who she was during yeah. her life. No one. So it just, I think, and it's and everything in the gospel supports that. You know, be a servant. And many who are last shall be first. And the one who serves. And don't worry. You're, you know, the the your faith, the size of mustard seed will become the tree, and uh, the birds will come to dwell in its branches. So um, I think also one one thing I want to mention is. Um, you know, a lot. I know for me, a lot of the times when I feel sort of oppressed or um, or without power, or it's really because of patterns of my own behavior. Say codependency, of which I have a huge, huge strength. You know, sort of people pleasing, being afraid to say to kind of stand my ground or to say 
no when I mean no and yes when I mean yes, you know, sort of passive aggressive, hard for me to communicate directly to sort of say, and those are, I think working on that stuff has also given me a huge, that's, that's what's quote empowering because it, it's something within my own control. And it is also toward as all true and quote empowerment is it's, it's all toward love, love one another. As I have loved you said Christ, Christ was the farthest thing from a codependent ever. So, um, I think, uh, yeah. And you, you explain how, how he understood women. Yeah. Loved women. Totally. He totally got us. He got our hearts. He got, Here's a, oh, Chris, here, this is one of the greatest moments in all of literature to my mind. Speaking of women and Flannery O'Connor, she has this story, Good Country People. And um, it's uh, Hulga, who's this intellectual. She's been to college. She's an atheist. She's a sort of, oh, please. And, and she's <laughs> home. She has a wooden leg. And she's home with her provincial mother and her mother's gossipy sort of simple, stupid friends. And she's a virgin. And this traveling Bible salesman comes along and she thinks, oh, I'm going to take him up to the hayloft and seduce him. She does the thing that so many, and I am foremost among that, you know, I'll just sleep with someone who's kind of stupid. And then, um, you know, whatever, that will give me power. And I'll have power over him because he's too simple to understand my sophisticated, you know, whatever. (laughs) gets the guy up in the hayloft and he's like a bumpkin or presents as a bumpkin. They kiss. And literally in the next moment, she's like imagining what her wedding dress dress will look like. You know, (laughs) that is, you can rail against it. You can say, I'm not like, but that is, that is, we are made for that. And I think it's something to be proud of. You should love the person that you're about to give yourself to. And he should be committed to you, ma'am, because, because your heart is going to be crushed because that's how, that's certainly how I was, you know, I would kiss the guy and then like, you know, become obsessed with him. So anyway, um, I think that, and that's one way literature holds a mirror, really good literature uh, holds a mirror up to us and to our human condition. Right. Because there is a, uh, a deep wiring for relationship and vulnerability and uh, Christ got that, with the with the Samaritan woman by the well and so on, or uh, yes, yeah. all yes, so many times he got. I mean, the whole Martha Mary, you know, every yeah. we all of that that split in us. Women absolutely are called upon, and you know, somehow we end up setting the table and putting the flowers out, and and what that is to me is beautiful. But it's a but it's a um, it's a huge. Um, you know, to, to the uh, every time a man wants to become a quote woman, I, I just think, oh, you're not strong enough to be a woman. <laughs> you know, because Amen. really, a woman, it's unbelievable the strength it takes to do what Mary did stand at the foot of the cross while her son is being tortured to death on it. You know, and in a sense, that is what women are called to, you know, we're called to hold this tension of. I think always wanting more deeper relationship with the man as Mary longed for, I'm sure from Jesus, you know, and he's kind of like, 
who is my mother and my brother? Yeah, right. <laughs> why were you looking for me? <laughs> He's like, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to crown you a queen. I mean, I yeah. absolutely honored her. But at the same time, that's a woman's heart. We always, I think women want to, you know, we want to sit down and like talk. Yes. And men yeah. are always like, ah, <laughs> can we not talk, please? You know, <laughs> that too, it's that split in the garden, in the garden of Eden. And to hold that without being resentful without jockeying for power, you know, while owning our own power, um, but not wanting the power of the other. It's, it really is a huge task. And, and I think the church absolutely supports us a thousand percent. It says, go out and bear, spread the gospels to the end of the earth, however that's given to you. And it's often, as you say, within our own families. I mean, most, the vast majority of the time, that's where it is, our own families, our own communities. Um, and and I think to just have a sense of mission about it, that this is important work, even if no one in the whole world recognizes it, Christ sees it, God sees it. That feels to me a tremendously important point and something that I think it's hard to articulate about the Catholic Church because we believe that Mary is the Queen of Heaven, and we we have such a strong Mariology that uh, outsiders will say, like, well, what is this? Is this idolatry? What the heck is going on? Where do you get these traditions from? And like you pointed out earlier, nobody knew Saint Therese of Lisieux during her lifetime. Well, how do we know these things? How are these how are these things? The participation of the communion of saints, the um, the importance of Mary in heaven. How do we even know these things except for through revelation and um, uh, something that's hard to put your finger on because it's not written on paper and you can't you can't point to it. How does the church tradition work? Do you have a feeling of how these things are revealed or how um, I, I don't even have the words for the question, but like, how do yeah. how do Catholics know the traditions they have, whereas other people are much more uh, empirical? Yeah, no, that's a great exactly, and that's that's the church, and it's centered on the Eucharist, on the transubstantiation. How it's the confluence of this world and the and and the other world, you know, and the kingdom, and I think right, you could, can't write it on paper, you can't write a scientific theory, but it is written on your heart. And the way you know is that you begin to live your life in accordance with it. And your life, you're, and you begin to be transformed in some way that is mostly completely invisible to the world. And with all your, most of your faults intact. Um, I think the one thing that you cannot argue with is is the martyrs and the saints. How do you, quote, explain them in any kind of human worldly sense? It doesn't make sense. And yet they lay down their lives. And, um, you know, again, to your question of gender language and all, and all that stuff, where's... I had this moment. I went to Rome several years ago. They were having a synod in the family. And um, because Dorothy Day had gone during Vatican II, she uh-huh. took like a tramp steamer and like fasted. And I was like, well, I'm going to do I'm gonna fly. And, like, <laughs> you know, but I like did my thing. Yeah. I, you know, I fasted in my way and I, I just wanted to be there in Rome. And 
I would walk along the banks. Like I, I wasn't drawn up, you know, like St. Peter's and all that. Stuff. I mean, it was great, but it's so many people. I don't, you know, so I would creep along the banks of the Tiber. That was my place down by the river. And I come across, across the, um, oh, it's called the Island of something or other. And on it is the church of the modern, modern day martyrs. You can walk over to it. San Bartolomeo. And you go in this church and there are chapels. I'm going to like weep, you know, of people yeah. from our time under the communists, under the Nazis in Latin America, in Africa, people who were, who laid down their lives, who were killed hideously in many cases. And it's like, I, you know, you just, I just fell to my knees and just please Lord help me just to touch the hem of these people's garments, you know, and that's, that's what it is for me to be a member of the church. Like, I, you know, it's like that I should, that I really should be able to worship at the same altar is just beyond everything, you know? And, um, and so again, yeah, it's a, it's a religion really of the heart. You can't explain it. You can only, you can only, you know, attraction, not promotion, as we say. And, uh, um, you know, and if people are, I think if their hearts are hungry enough, they're, they'll, they will be attracted, you know. Yeah. What kind of practices do you have that connect you to the transcendent, to the community of saints? To, uh, You know, I, I woke up early this morning and I, I prayed the rosary. Um, and how do I know? How do I know what it means? How do I know I'm not just in my kitchen? How do I, I can't see the, I can't see the unseen. How how do you navigate this world with one foot in the, in the, in the invisible cosmological? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally. Oh, tons of ritual. You know, somebody asked me not long ago in reference to my celibacy, you know, how do you deal with not having touch in your life? For example, I'm like, oh man, you should see my place. It's, I mean, my, my home is just filled with, um, you know, first of all, bird, bird feeders, <laughs> you know, yeah. lots of color and cards and icons and statues and prayer cards. And I, I lit a candle before speaking to you today. And, but yeah, I get up, I light my candle, I light my incense and I pray the divine office is the first thing I do. And, um, and then I read that day's liturgy and I reflect on it a bit. And then I sit silently, you know, I have a whole prayer thing. In other words, in the morning, I'm a super morning person. So, and I will often spend you know, an hour or two, and I might be sort of puttering around a little bit in between feeding the hummingbirds or something. Mm. Um, but, but I think, you know, candles, I think are very important. You know, I mean, all this stuff resonates with us. And then I try, yeah, I always have a rosary with me. So I'll pray the, I pray the rosary every day, somehow or other. Um, I try to make it to daily, I make it to daily mass as much as I can. Um, there's a Newman Center nearby that I'm actually going to go to after this because they're having a little get together for the lay people there. But um, and they have five five p.m. evening prayer followed by mass, which is lovely. They also have a Blessed Sacrament Chapel, and that's something I am being drawn to. I think more. You know, I'm a I'm kind of a contemplative. I'm also super like, let's get a list and check stuff off. Like, <laughs> that, you know, and get out of my way. You're too freaking slow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't have time for your chit chat. 
So, you know, I, um, and then I think it's some kind of evening prayer, it's some kind of examine, you know, how did my day go? Where did I go off the rails? Forgive me, help me, um, please. Uh, you know, even like kneeling by the bed, you know, even now I lay me down to sleep, some kind of please bless my sleep. Um, and then during the day, I've been trying to say maybe noon prayer or midday prayer from the, um, or rather mid-afternoon prayer from the office, um, like that. Yeah. And then, of course, I write about, you know, my whole work life is really around that. And a lot of it's answering emails from, pe- you know, I just hear from all kinds of different people through my blog, through my writing, and that's part of my kind of discipline and also of my extended community, I suppose you could say. So the the mystical body is front and center, for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and if we and the world is noisy and clamorous, but it doesn't compete with your attention that way. You're, uh, you're never in danger of missing out on those offices or... Of course, you know, I've, I certainly am. But I think because I, I mean, I literally would get up some, my circuit, I'll just get up at 4 or 30 yeah. or something like that. So it's kind of ready-made time that presents itself too. Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I often think, oh, that's God. You know, I think if you spend enough time in prayer, you know, I, that that verse where Christ says, could you not sit with me for an hour is... Uh, really one of the most poignant ones when he was in the garden uh, Gethsemane and um, and you get the sense after a while oh maybe he likes spending time with me a little bit too you know yeah yeah <laughs> unbelievable as it may seem right how that is that's so central and I think we miss it often all yeah. through our busy noisy lives well uh, Heather King what an honor and a pleasure it is to spend this hour with you uh, this day, and would you please say a blessing for our listeners? Oh, how beautiful! Oh, okay, Lord, thank you so much for um, for bringing Chris and I together. Um, I want to bless his work and his family, and and all you listeners. Um, let's just work together, knowing that we are praying for each other working toward loving one another as Christ loved us and working to um, to spread the gospels to the ends of the earth. And thank you so, so much for being with us today. Amen. 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 Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh. The babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Heather King recorded this conversation on February 5th, 2022, the Feast of St. Agatha of Sicily. Our music, What Child Is This?, is by Josh and Margot from the band The Great Space Coaster. Find their music at www. GSCoasterBand.com The image of the dog, our logo, is from a stained glass window at the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the permission of the Dominican friars of England, Wales, and Scotland from their website, english.op.org.
My name is Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing.